We've talked about how COVID-19 disrupted the economy, the global commodity chains that so much of our economies rely on, and how that meant hundreds of thousands, if not millions of workers, were immediately put out of work. One thing that meant in a lot of global South countries, including Pakistan, was that thousands of people who come to cities to work ended up going back to rural areas. In some cases, they may have taken COVID-19 back with them, but it does not look like that led to a dramatic increase in numbers, at least in Pakistan. Travel between provinces was eventually restricted, but it seems like most people had the time to get back home if they needed to. This was a bit different from what happened in India. Travel between states was restricted immediately and pretty sharply. That resulted in a lot of hardship for many workers, men and women alike, who were trying to get home. Millions of them started out on foot, traveling hundreds or even thousands of kilometers on foot. People died along the way from being tired or hunger or illness because COVID-19 is not the only illness that poor people have to face. This kind of living between the city and the village, the urban and the rural, is really increasingly common for working class people in much of the third world, to the extent that scholars even call them a semi-proletariat, which means partly working class, partly because these families cannot fully survive on the land that they have maybe in the village, but they are also not fully engaged in wage labor. And so to find work, they have to go somewhere else and they establish households that are split across the city and the village, or maybe even between two or more villages. So understanding this kind of migrant labor is really important because it's so common. And that then leads us maybe into another way of investigating the question of labor, who does what, how they do it which is how do these households reproduce themselves? And by reproduction, I don't really just mean how are new human beings getting born, because that's important, but that when a worker comes home and he or she is tired and hungry, then how does that worker become ready or get reproduced for the next day or the next thing that they have to do? So obviously that involves rest. It involves eating food, and it may involve just unloading, ranting, getting restored emotionally. So, But then the question is, who is cooking that food? And who is repairing that body? And who is doing the listening? Who is actually giving the ear for the listening that's happening? Who's doing all of this work which socially reproduces people? If you think about your own household, and if you're listening and you are a woman, then you know that it's probably yourself who does that kind of work alongside your mother and other sisters. And if you're a male, probably you don't do much in that respect. Or if you do stuff, your sisters and your mother do a lot more. But that is also assuming that you do the work yourself. Probably you've hired a working class woman, a Masi, to do it for you. And so this kind of work or socially reproductive labor generally gets ignored. It doesn't get counted when we talk about the economy because if money is not changing hands, then it usually doesn't get counted 
into the calculations for the gross domestic product or GDP. And if we're thinking about women's labor and women in the household, then how lockdowns affected women is also a really important question. Within a month of lockdown in Pakistan, the reports of domestic abuse shot up like 200%. So you can imagine what this kind of persistent lockdown and also the economic collapse has meant for violence and abuse against women in households. But is there a relationship between the fact that women do most of the social reproductive labor and the fact that women receive the vast majority of domestic violence or abuse? And what does that look like more generally in terms of women's role in the political economy? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we look at how politics and economics interrelate but also talk about how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics. Over the course of this podcast, we will be inviting speakers from different disciplines and perspectives to speak to us about how they approach these kinds of questions. I am your host, Numan Ali. I am an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So to discuss these kinds of questions, I am pretty excited to be joined by Dr. Priti Ramamurthy, who is Professor of Gender, Women and Sexuality Studies at the University of Washington in the United States. Dr. Ramamurthy pioneered the feminist commodity chain analysis, and she's also contributed to many journals and books. We're going to be discussing mostly her paper co-authored with Vinay Gidwani called The Gender of Value, Punctuated Violence and the Labor of Care, which is forthcoming in the journal Feminist Studies. And as we'll see, this paper uses the life story of a woman in northern India. Her name is Usha to explore the kinds of themes that the authors want to go into. I should also note that I'm excited by the fact that Dr. Ramamurthy has done much of her research in Telangana. That's where she's from. It's a region or now a state in India. And that is, in fact, where my family comes from in India as well before we migrated to Pakistan. So let's hear from Dr. Ramamurthy. By training uh, and choice, I'm an ethnographer. I'm originally from the Telangana region of the Deccan in South India. And I've gone back to the same villages for more than 30 years. I basically have studied how transformations in agriculture are affecting transformations in farming families, the organization of family labor, uh, femininities, masculinities. But for the past four or five years, my focus has shifted from the agrarian to the relationship between the city and the country. And this was prompted by the fact that agriculture doesn't provide a viable livelihood for most households in rural areas any longer. So one or two members or the whole family must migrate to the city where they find uncertain employment in what is called the urban informal economy. We have statistics of the growing problem of unemployment, especially of youth in India and Pakistan. But too few stories based on the experiences and aspirations, the life-making activities and desires of the men and women who toil in the cities, even as they remain really enmeshed with what is going on in their villages. So how do people build lives when they're perched between 
aspirations and desires for more and the fatigue of their precarious lives and of reproduction. Okay, that is very interesting stuff and we will get into it in a bit. But let me ask you, what got you interested in this kind of work and what do you find exciting about it? So I actually grew up in a very middle class, very urban home in Delhi and in Hyderabad. But there was a gap of six months between my high school final exam and when I started college. And I volunteered with the NGO that was providing food and health services to women and children in some villages surrounding Hyderabad. And it was a real eye-opener because I went for the first time from hut to hut, asking people whether they were sending their girls to this free kindergarten school where girls were also being given free midday meal. And for many poor families, this was not something that they were even considering. And so it was a real puzzle to me why they were not willing to send their girls to this little preschool where they were getting a free meal and starting off uh, with education. And I found that there were many challenges in terms of the safety of the girls. There were also many challenges in terms of taking care of siblings at home. So there were just many, many things that I had never thought of before. And that got me interested in what I have later uh, studied and felt quite passionately about. So after school, I detoured into very elite educational institutions in India. And none of the education I got was preparing me to answer these troubling puzzles that I had witnessed when I was 15 years old and had just graduated from high school. So I finally got a scholarship to study uh, here in the U.S. and discovered there was a whole field called development studies. And that's when I started doing work that I'm really passionate about. I think what you just said is very important and very key to note that sometimes when we are studying stuff kind of from a top-down perspective, we might see the actions of poor people or working class people as being irrational. Why are they not sending their kids to school? Why are they not doing X or Y, which we understand and believe leads to development or to progress? But when you actually go down and do the kind of face-to-face ethnographic work, which I believe can best be described as advanced hanging out, but when you do that kind of work, you realize that there are so many other considerations that than what our theories account for. Yes, absolutely. I think I just love talking and listening very carefully to people and observing their lives. And I'm always really humbled by their generosity and their grit and their grace. And there are always puzzles. There are always surprises in ethnographic work. It's always interactive and incomplete project. And it's always premised on relationships, friendships and commitments. So you can't just wash your hands and walk off. So maybe in that vein, then what are the challenges and frustrations that you face in your work? Some of the challenges are that I've been doing this for so long and things have not improved that, you know, development studies is a field, one can actually say, that goes back to colonialism. 
there's always been an aspect of growth that has created inequalities. And if you think of development as economic change for social justice, those movements have been around for the last 400 years at least. So my frustration is that more has not changed. But on the other hand, I think that a lot has and for the better. And we are certainly seeing mobilizations even today, whether it's the Aurath March in Pakistan or Pinjaratod in India, or very strong Dalit and Adivasi movements, Black Lives Matter, immigration and Latinx movements in the U.S. These all give me uh, hope. And I do feel that we in universities must take more responsibility for not doing more, for not doing a better job of educating people, especially privileged people, both young and old. Okay, so can you tell us maybe a bit more about Usha and and why her story inspired you to basically write a whole article around it? Yes, certainly. So, you know, Usha just has amazing spirit. She's very tez. She's intelligent. She's also very outspoken. And she's got this really strong urge or uh, what, um, you know, Arjuna Padurai has called the capacity to aspire. So it's a kind of ability to to navigate their lives, right? They actually have a horizon of hopes and desires. And it's really remarkable because she's a woman. She's a Rajput woman who still wears her, her sari pallo as a padda when she goes to the village or when somebody older than her is is in the room. She completely lacks education. She might have gone to school till the first or second standard. She doesn't know how to reach his unpar. So given her circumstances, for someone like her to achieve what she has is really quite remarkable. She's got her char manzil makan. She's aiming for her char salary parivar. And she's getting pretty close to there. But she's also experienced a great deal of violence and pain and poignancy. And so this intertwining of aspiration and violence uh, was something that I was very, very puzzled by, but also inspired by her story. So at one level, it's a personal story, which is a pretty amazing one. But the second reason is that I really think that Usha's story exemplifies certain global trends. And those are trends that are important for all of us to understand because we're really in the midst of them ourselves as well. So the rise in the urban informal economy and its persistence is one that development studies never predicted. Informal economies were supposed to disappear with the rise of industrial manufacturing. Everybody was supposed to have a good working class job. The second reason it's important in terms of global trends is the crisis of farming. That as plots have become too small for families to subsist, 
people are migrating to cities or people are migrating across country borders. And certainly we see this happening all over the world. So Ushas then is a microcosm of how these larger processes are manifest. And they show how these are not just problems of capitalist production, but they're problems of social reproduction. So at two levels then, this is a very interesting, inspiring personal story, but it's also a story that is reflecting on and produced by macro trends. Okay, so let's get into this category of social reproduction. So I think for most people, capitalist production is probably understandable, but social reproduction is not something that really comes up a lot. Maybe we can get into this with this observation that you and uh, Gidwani Saab make, that when we speak about caring in Hindi and Urdu, we talk about care karna. Kisi ke liye hum care kar rahe hain. Like care is a doing, it's an action. Not just I have an emotional feeling towards you, but that I'm actually engaged in a form of labor. So what does care entail and why do you consider this to be a form of work? And maybe what does this have to do with what, what we call social reproduction? Yes. So caring karna, I think, is really telling because it refers to, as you were just pointing out, the action, the doing, the physical processes and practices, which are also using up our energies daily and they are also used up intergenerationally. So old people need more caring, especially when they get to be very old. So domestic chores, cooking, cleaning, washing, all of those are included in care karna. Care for people who can't take care of themselves, whether they're children, the sick, the elderly, the disabled. Sex, affection, emotional and mental support, all of these things that we rely on each other for is care work. But it's a subset of what feminists call social reproduction, which includes biological reproduction, having children, bringing them up until they can be independent, but also socializing them and maintaining communities because we can't do these things all alone. We can't actually do them just within our families, but it's also the extended family. It's also the community that's important. And we also need what we can think of as social infrastructures, which are necessary for bodies to replenish, such as uh, water, food, healthcare, cleaning. So care is a smaller subset of social reproduction. And uh, feminist scholars have spent a lot of time thinking about social reproduction very carefully because it is what Marx called a hidden abode. You don't see it. It's not visible in the same way as uh, productive work is. Okay, so we, we can get into this hidden part in a second. In your work, you talk about care and social reproduction, I guess, more generally as being part of a moral economy. 
Right. So moral economy is broadly referring to systems of economic transactions that invoke social relationships and the moral norms of society. So it's particularly applicable to domestic laboring spheres, the family, because exchanges are not based purely on contractual rationales, but they're very much embedded in cultural and moral values. So women are said to be naturally caring, but in fact, they have been socialized to care. Men have been constructed as being good provisioners. But this idea that men are the main breadwinners for the family, that they have a moral duty to provision their families, this is also something that is culturally and socially produced. So moral economy then is a really interesting way for us to recognize the family as having aspects of it that are in fact economic and labor transactions, but is overlaid with very, very important and compelling uh, social and moral norms. So in this, you're implying that there are relations of power really, because if we're saying people are being slotted into these roles that the roles that people are are participating in are socially produced they're culturally produced it also means that if i want to leave that role if i want to try and take over another role then i'll be prevented from doing that and that may be where a relationship of power comes in absolutely that is exactly why these things are important because the overall system is constantly working And the individual who wants to make a change is constantly meeting with not just the moral approbation of their own family members, but of society itself. So when a girl, for example, steps out of the house in either the village or the basti or even in a middle class neighborhood and wears dress which is not considered morally appropriate, she is going to be teased. She's going to be harassed. She's even going to be raped. And the logic you will hear, which is a systemic one, is that it was her fault. Not that the society itself is holding her up to these norms. And I think it's worth noting that even when women do dress the way that society expects them to dress, even when they operate within the bounds that they're supposed to, they will still get teased, harassed, and even raped, and they will still be blamed for it. Why did she do X? Why did she do this and not do that? And I think that's what makes the logic systemic, uh, in that it really doesn't matter what an individual does or what an individual does is incidental to the way that men hold power in the system. So that system that you're discussing, many of us call it patriarchy. It literally means rule of the father. And so in Urdu, we might say, or 
And somewhere in your work, you make this analogy between capitalism and patriarchy. So a capitalist controls the means of production and so gets to command the labor power of the worker. And you point out that men and patriarchal women control the means of reproduction and so they can command a woman's labor. But this kind of division of labor that you've described, that women have to do these roles and, and men have to do these roles, okay, we can say they're maybe socially produced. But what? why is it that that seems to be a, a negative thing if a woman does work at home, but she also receives things in return? In the same way that a worker gets a wage, a woman gets shelter, she gets food, she gets clothing, she gets other things as well. And there's a reciprocity there. So why is this seen as problematic or, or unequal? That's a good question for us to be thinking about. So the question here really is, how does society value production and reproduction, paid labor and unpaid labor? One way to think about this differential valuation or the fact that there is a hierarchy here, that some people are valued more than others. So even when you say reciprocity, is there a hierarchy in that reciprocity? Who would be doing what in that sexual division of labor? So one way to think about this hierarchical valuation is to think about what is paid and what is unpaid. Since what is paid is something that is a commodity and it is something that is being brought into the market, it places a normative value, right? It places a social value on certain kinds of activities and it also places a value which is hierarchical. So we pay a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon a lot more than we are paying the chaprasi or the jameda. So in Europe in the 1980s, there was a very active movement called Wages for Housewives. And what these people tried to do was to bring attention to the devaluation of caring karna, or what we can think of as domestic service work. Because this actually provides a subsidy for capitalist production. So they thought, okay, if we put a, a wage on all housework, and it actually doesn't matter whether men do it or women do it, let's put a price on it, and let's actually get into public awareness that this is an important contribution. So one aspect of it was to actually put a price on it and try to do that. And the other was, the more important point was to draw attention to the ideologies or social attitudes that invisibilize all this work. So wifehood, motherhood, good daughter-in-lawhood, romantic love, Valentine's Day, reciprocity, all these are names for these social attitudes, or we can even think of them as cultural ideologies. 
Now, not surprisingly, this movement failed. And the movement failed because we actually relate to each other and we love and nurture each other through some of these very ideologies. So it's very difficult when they're so entangled with each other to take them apart. And that's why this moral economy points up to the double edge of care. It's both what makes us human beings, but it also has an element to it that is, in fact, exploitative. So the very thing that gives us value and meaning is also the thing that is devaluing us and kind of reducing us from our total potential. Exactly. And there's an interesting point you made about how domestic service work or the housework subsidizes capitalist production. Can you expand on this a little bit? Yes. So I always ask my students in my um, undergraduate classes to do an experiment, to think about how much they would value this work. And actually, COVID is giving us a very real form of this experiment because we have been forced to think about the value of this work. So if you actually put a cost on it, then capital would have to pay a lot more for the productive worker that they, that capital and capitalists are counting on. You would have to, in fact, then pay for childcare. You would have to pay for elderly care. You would have to pay for good health. A lot of this, as COVID has shown, has moved into the house now. Women are doing triple shifts, you can say, because so much of this has come into the four walls of each of our houses. So in very real terms, then, capital gets a subsidy because this is, in fact, unpaid. So this concept of triple shift that you just brought up is also important. And just to review, the key thing that we're talking about when we talk about care work or social reproductive work is that, by and large, across the world, the majority of care and social reproductive work is done by women. And when you actually add up all of the work that everybody is doing, then pretty much everywhere in the world, women do more work than men. That is a universal constant almost everywhere in the world, that women overall do more work than men. And those kinds of roles, those gender roles, those, the sexual division of labor is enforced through violence. If a woman crosses those lines, then she is seen as an appropriate target of violence. And sometimes when men cross those lines, the violence may not be as explicit, but uh, I remember one of my students telling me, when I go into my kitchen to start cooking roti, then people will, will start making fun of me. They'll say, Tum aurat ban ho. have you become a woman now? So it's in those ways. I think Bell Hooks talks about how even men are policed and women, of course, are, are very much more so policed. But if we, if we go into this concept of the triple shift, my understanding is that what we're talking about here is that women are not only doing work inside the house, but increasingly they're expected to work outside of the house. And, and to say increasingly 
might be more relevant to Pakistan and India, where the labor force participation of women has been increasing a little bit recently, or at least that is what we see. Whereas women have actually been participating in productive labor since forever, especially in agricultural labor. Women have been working in the fields. Women do so much of agricultural labor. Uh, and I think you talk about this, the kind of work that women do in accumulating value that's not simply kind of social reproductive value. You call it the gender of value or the gendered regime of value. So can you expand a little bit on this? Yes. You know, what you brought out really well is that violence is very much part of maintaining the sexual division of labor, both within the home, but also outside of it. The reason this is really important is that when women enter into the labor force, they don't get rid of these ideologies and therefore of the differential valuation. So when you think of women entering into markets, markets are also gendered. They are also the bearers of gender. By which I mean, think of the occupations that women do. Teaching, nursing, childcare, basically domestic service works gets commodified. And even when it gets commodified, it is paid a lot less. It is assumed to be unskilled work that anybody, in fact, could do. So this gendered regime of value idea allows us to think not just about the household and the family, but in fact about the larger relationship between production and reproduction as well. So, you know, if you come back to the COVID lockdowns, certainly in India more than in Pakistan and certainly in the U.S. as well, domestic service workers who Indian middle class households rely on enormously were not allowed into the homes first. And this put a huge pressure on middle class women in India who were working. Now, they were also working from the home, but they were working in their IT jobs or in media or whatever else. And they also were now doing all of the gharelu So the relationship there between productive and social reproductive labor became really clear that these households had been functioning because middle class women could go out and earn a whole lot of money because somebody else or another working class woman, poor woman, was doing the work at home. So can you help me understand how the term gendered regime of value then helps us get at this? So this is the fact that the productive labor, as you just said, the productive labor that a middle class woman can do rests upon the foundation of social reproductive labor that is being outsourced in a sense to a working class woman. And so gender is intrinsic to the production of value. Exactly. So, you know, the gendered regime of value refers to both the value that is placed on work that is designated male and female and is differentiated 
without care work, as you just pointed out, the material conditions for the reproduction of labor and the capacity to labor would not be produced. And secondly, as we saw in the case of either middle class working women or in the case of Usha, the labor and accumulation strategies of females themselves are also seen as for the family, right? So even when they enter into the productive workforce, this is swept up in this idea of a gendered valuation. Right. So as a male, if I go into the workforce, there's an understanding that this is, you know, I'm providing for the family, but it's very much as a male, I have this right to a career that is independent, really, of anything. Whereas if a woman goes into this kind of work or starts thinking about how can I make money for her, it's it's almost subordinate to the idea that everything she does has to be socialized in the family. Can you maybe expand on this, especially the way that you talk about Usha is maybe a bit different than a middle class woman working uh, at a job, at a profession in the city, because the way that she accumulates income or value for the family is through, I think, real estate in some ways, buying and selling property or just saving up money and then being very clever or intelligent about how she uses that money. But then what is the expectations around what she's going to do with that money? Yes, exactly. I think, you know, this came through again and again in our oral histories with working class women in India. The children are everything in their lives. And everything that they do is for their children. So Usha has been really very and very strategic in how she has basically squatted on land and then first built a jhuggi, then built a brick mud structure, then made it into concrete, then added a few rooms, bazume upar, then rented them out, then bought some more land. So this real estate and the ways in which working class people have used, you know, basti land to grow their families is something that I really was quite surprised by. But if you think about what strategies did she have available to her, this was one of the very few things that she could have done. But most women have either gone on and done domestic service work or some of them have done, they have really built in interesting ways on their traditional caste. So there's one woman who comes from a Nai, you know, the barber caste, and she's become a provider of beauty care in apartment buildings. So she's able to find a pathway around the patriarchy in her house by telling them that she's doing a caste occupation. She's still doing something to do with being a nai. But on the other hand, now she's able to go out of the house for the first time and earn her own money. She allows her husband to continue his work as a barber and all the money goes into a joint account, which he thinks that he is still in control of. 
but she's actually earning at least double or triple what he's earning now. Wow. Does Usha's not having alternatives also have to do with her caste? Because she's Rajput, which is an upper caste. Rajput orton ko parda karna parda hai. They have to do a parda, which is also interesting because we think that parda is a Muslim thing specifically, but it's very much a Northern Indian thing, I think. Absolutely. It has very much got to do with her being Rajput. Or wo parda karti hai, as I mentioned earlier. The moment we went back into her village, she drew her ghungat, her uh, sari ghungat, even lower. And she jokored her head. So literally, she didn't know the geography of her husband's village. Because she had been a, a, you know, a young daughter-in-law for the first one or two years. She did not even know her way around the village. She didn't know her way to the bus stop. Because the following of Rajput caste norms, which are to keep Parda, was so strong. So, yes, absolutely. The limited options that Usha had were tied to her caste. The other way to look at this is to think of people who are Dalit or untouchable castes. And the women that we talked to and the men that we talked to in Delhi and Hyderabad had limited options if they were older Dalits because they got slotted into particular occupations. So if you look at municipal sweepers in Delhi and Hyderabad, this is the dirty work of Jharu Karna of the streets, then they are still overwhelmingly Dalit. So caste plays a very important role, not just in ideologies within the home, but also in paid labor opportunities outside in the urban informal economy. We have almost the exact same situation in Pakistan, where at least in Lahore, the work of sweepers is really done by Christians who tend to be considered to belong to lower castes. And there is something like untouchability that operates here as well, using different dishes, you know, Muslims will not eat with Christians, things like this, these small things that they're not small at all, actually, they're very big, and that reproduce caste, and they reproduce certain occupational segregations. So that's also very much part of Pakistan. It's really not at all different. Although, of course, there will be specific things that are different. But speaking of ideology in the household, one thing you talk about is how now when you go to get your son married to a woman, you're going to ask, what value does this woman bring to my household? It's no longer a question of can she cook, can she clean, which is important, but it's also can she work, can she run some kind of business? And that ideology has changed maybe over the last 20, 30 years. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you bring this up because I think it's always very important to think about patriarchy as a changing system. One of the reasons, you know, feminists got a bit fed up with the concept of patriarchy is that it is too clunky a uh, analytic. And I agree with that, but what I've tried to do in my own work is to show that it's constantly changing and so is capitalism. 
So the relationship between these two changing systems is what I have tried to think about. And you're right that one of the most important changes I have seen, both in the Telangana villages, where I have a very long relationship, and in this more recent work on migrants like Usha, is that earlier daughters-in-law would be chosen for the work that they do, like are they efficient field workers, are they good at housework, and are they going to care for the parents in old age? This is why, you know, consanguineous marriages between the mama and niece or between cross-cousins, this is why these still continue. They continue because she will look after me in my old days. That's what mothers-in-law say about these relationships when they're getting their sons married to their own nieces or to their brothers. But definitely in the last 20-30 years, there is a shift because now they're also looking for what they think of as efficient workers in the field, efficient workers in the home, and women who will go out and get money back. So Usha being a Rajput is no longer imposing Parda on her daughter-in-law. Both her daughters-in-law and the second son has also married now. She's encouraging them to go out and work, right? This is that char salary kamana, which is of her two sons and her two daughters-in-law so that she and her husband can live a comfortable life at home. So definitely patriarchy is changing in response to some of these other changes in the economy and in the way people are what we call self-responsible. They're made to feel individually responsible for their own growth and upward mobility. I think this is such a key point that you're making about how patriarchy changes. It reminds me of, I was in Lahore, I was in a car with a Kareem driver, or Uber driver, I guess. And uh, we saw a woman going on a scooter. And uh, this is very rare. Even in India, I think in many places, it's still rare, maybe a little less rare in in Delhi and, and big cities. But in Pakistan, it's still rare but it's an increasing sight. So we see this woman going on a scooter and he comments almost reluctantly that he understands why she's out. He says it's no longer possible for a family to make a living simply on what the man earns. And so now women have to enter the workforce. And it was not uh, something that he was necessarily happy about because the norm of women not leaving homes is so important. But at the same time, he was not judgmental of it. So a lot of men in Pakistan will still say, you know, women should not leave the household. It's wrong. And uh, if they have to do it, but I think those attitudes may change slowly, very slowly, while still retaining that kind of if it's happening. It's interesting to see how then there's this tension or contradiction between, on one hand, we have caste practices, we have this knowledge and way of being around women, but also how economic compulsion will push against that. 
Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, you mentioned a very important point, which is this question of the izzat of the family being bound up in women's behavior. So this is one of those really, really strong social and cultural ideologies that prove very, very difficult to dismantle. And they are always brought up at these moments of struggle or change. Precisely, you know, economics sometimes demand that they are changed, which brings us back actually then to social reproduction, because until societies value social reproduction and can take it away from who is doing the work, but how is it valued? And that brings up very important discussions about skill. Again, if you know, to go back to that example of the heart surgeon and the jamedar, are we willing to pay the jamedar as much as the heart surgeon? Right? So these are the important questions that then start to come up because otherwise we run into these contradictions of capitalism as we are seeing with COVID. That one of the central contradictions of capitalism is that it needs workers to be productive, but at the same time it's squeezing workers. And this is leading to what is called the exhaustion problem. But until the exhaustion problem is only seen as something that's happening within families, and is only on women or working class people, we're not going to change it. I think that's a really important point. I think many of us had no idea how exhausted we were until we had no choice but to stay at home. In a sense that just doing work all the time, it becomes easy to forget how much work you're doing when you're being asked to do work constantly. And then when, when all of that shuts down and you have to do it maybe in a different location or from home, you realize how much work is done when you're commuting. If I wake up at 6 a.m. so that I can get to work by, by 7.30, that is a lot of work, but that doesn't get counted. And the most important work, as you point out, that does not get counted is, is the work that's done in the household. But maybe speaking about these changes now of women and maybe having more visible positions in the workforce and this creating tensions, uh, in some ways... The norms around aurton ki izzat, or rather khandan ki izzat, parivar ki izzat, aurat mein hai, it becomes almost more important when women are now forced to enter into the workforce because of these economic compulsions. And at least in Pakistan, with the aurat march and stuff like this, it acquires a different kind of importance or salience. And maybe here we can also talk about violence and the question of violence because generally, when we talk about violence against women, we sometimes we naturalize it, like men will be violent, or we just think of it as, as almost random, that, that violence just exists out there. But we rarely think about violence as being related to maintaining gender norms or social reproduction. Actually, I should correct myself. I think men are very conscious when they engage in violence that they want women to stay in their place. 
when you talk to individual men they will very explicitly say ye ye aurat apne had se bahar ja rahi hai she thinks she has power i have to remind her who has power in this relationship these are explicit literal things that men have said to me uh, mm-hmm. or to people i know so but they never come up in the in the media discourse and stuff like that yes i think actually there was the gender and development report which the world bank did in 2012 and that has reference or they themselves did a survey of different countries and in different countries they asked you know how acceptable was domestic violence which is 98% or whatever male violence against women and there was a remarkable and preponderant percentage of men and women who thought that this was acceptable right this is normal and it is the norm now what we were trying to do in this paper is to show that violence takes many many forms and one way is certainly this kind of corporeal embodied form right it's visited against the body it's physical it leaves its marks the first time usha showed me where she had got burnt she removed her sari pallu uh, from her neck to show me the scar so it leaves scars on the body which you are reminded of every time you look in a mirror but we wanted to also show that this violence is structural which is that if a person is denied the opportunity to grow to their full capacity they are being inhibited by structural factors access to good health access to education access to a future right so this is a kind of a structural violence so the linking of violence which is visited against individual bodies and normalized and this kind of structural violence that is something that i think we were trying to make uh, connections across in this paper and more generally as an intervention in the social sciences and hopefully uh, beyond so can you tell us a little bit then about how violence is used to police social reproduction yes so we definitely saw in usha's case how not just violence but the threat of violence right women are always scared that it's going to happen at any moment and it's not just women i mean one thing i definitely wanted to show was how usha herself is very patriarchal towards her daughter in law and is very violent towards her in terms of a kind of an abusive relationship so you know one day i was visiting her and she just went on this rant against this daughter in law about how wo sabse badi nikamma hai and she was just very abusive towards her and this girl was just in the next room in the kitchen with her sari 
pulled over her face cooking so it's this idea that even if it's not a physical hit it's something that can happen to you at any moment is a sort of violence that has not been recognized or talked about as much the third or fourth kind of violence that we wanted to draw attention to is the epistemic violence right which is the violence of silence the violence of not acknowledging the silence around not remembering and you know in usha's case it is through this example of her husband who refuses to ever acknowledge not just what she has done within the home but also this process of accumulation and this char manzil kamakan which she has built out of her own strategic thinking and her own economizing and efficiency around the household budget right bachat karti hu so the idea that you can actually squirrel away small amounts from your weekly household budget and invest in the education of your daughters in law your sons build this makan that is completely invisible right there's an epistemic violence to it you don't recognize her as a subject through those various kinds of acting so this concept of punctuated violence was trying to get at these multiple ways in which violence is important uh, to social reproduction and how important social reproduction then is to this particular life but to the life of society itself I think this might tie back into something that you said earlier about your frustrations with development studies and that it's not changing as much or as fast as you would like to see but I think that women's movements have played extremely important roles in South Asia and a lot of women's movements are not even recognized like Arundhati Roy she points out that some of the women's movements in rural areas might have a huge membership but they may not be registered by say urban middle class women's movements or they may not be registered by the government in the same way so there's women's movements that are playing extremely important roles but there's also this kind of microscopic change that you were talking about or maybe we, we might call it molecular like molecules bumping up against each other and although it's not maybe a dramatic change there are these little negotiations and little changes and how do you feel about them maybe adding up to something larger or a sea change at some point Yes, I think that you know you are putting your finger on the kind of connections that would in fact be amazing which is firstly that we don't have enough social science work in either Pakistan or India that is feminist work that is focusing on the rural and the agrarian in the numbers and the quantities and the imaginative ways that we need i find that most of my own graduate students are simply not interested in going and living in a village for a good reason maybe 
and they're also not willing to spend these long, whatever, six months, 12 months working in villages. So something has to give in terms of our methodologies, but also in terms of making young people interested in doing this work. And this is where I think some of the inequalities in our education system also need to be examined. There are some amazingly smart people in the villages that I have met who simply have not had the opportunities to study at institutions like LUMS or University of Washington. The second point that you make is that there are these rural mobilizations taking place. There are Dalit mobilizations, Adivasi mobilizations, mobilizations of farmers, and they have been ignored by elite educational establishments as well as more middle-class-led movements is also true. And I think, you know, they're coming together would in fact be very, very important. I can think of, you know, some organizations in Telangana which are trying to work with self-help groups or farmer groups which have a focus on gender and sexuality issues as well. And I think that is the way to go. The bringing together of some of these uh, mobilizations, which are working class and based in rural areas and agrarian, in the midst of agrarian populations, with some of the more interesting work that is emerging from ethnographic work. So maybe with that observation, I can ask you a last question. Throughout this discussion, you've been talking about value, about transactions, economics, accumulation, income. These are all very economic concepts, but generally people may not think of anthropology or ethnographic approaches as being as being connected to economics. So can you expand on how ethnography can actually help us understand economics better? Although I think you've already done that throughout the course of this interview, but maybe if you have some closing thoughts on that. Ethnography starts from people's lives. The actually existing conditions of people's lives and why and how they make sense of their own lives. How are their social practices meaningful to them, and what forms of everyday resistance, where are these wiggle rooms in their capacities to navigate these very dominant, very huge systemic structures of power. And that's always an excess of abstract theory and universalizing generalizations, which really for me points up the inadequacy of theory and its need for correction and also leads to the question of where is theory coming from. So, you know, when I did economics honors in Lady Sri Ram College, I was never told that there were alternatives to classical liberal economics. When you think about Marxism, it's also one of the very large theories. But these are also situated knowledges. They came out of a particular history. They came out of a particular place. And they masquerade as being general and objective and universally applicable. 
So we can, I think, begin by paying careful attention to people's lives. We can also begin to pay careful attention to the vernacular. Like, how do they make sense? What concepts are they using? What are the moral economies? What are the cultural practices in which these are embedded? And then the juxtaposing of these larger theories and how people are living their lives and making sense of them. That's where I think the interesting work needs to be done. So, you know, caring karna, the doing of caring is just one such concept. My colleagues, Craig Jeffrey and Jane Dyson's work, where kuch nahi karna, also, which, you know, you can just translate into English very blandly as doing nothing. But what they found is kuch nahi karna is actually a time when youth are doing a lot. They are helping each other, they are mediating for the community, they're getting resources. So I think that's where the ways that I think of as cultural practices, the everyday, these all become really important to informing economics and political economy.